Good morning, City Church. This is Kate Whitley. Um, my husband, Dave Whitley, and our daughter, Agnes, have been going to City Church for seven years now. And we just really miss y'all. We miss gathering in person. This pandemic stinks. And we look forward to the day when we can hug and see each other again so very soon. So um, I'm inviting y'all to please stand for the reading of God's Word, and it is Psalm 94. The Lord will not forsake His people. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long will the wicked, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear does not hear. Does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him the rest of days of trouble to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage for justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. He who rises up for me against the wicked, who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I said, my foot slips, your steadfast Lord, O Lord, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out of their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. This is the word of the Lord. Be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But this psalm, apparently so. Good morning, City Church. This is Philip Johnston. I've been asked to open God's Word for us this morning. We are currently in a sermon series on the psalms called The Normal Christian Life. The psalms reveal to us the full scope of Christian experience and teach us how to bring our emotions to God as we read and pray and sing them, God forms us and shapes us to respond appropriately to the swirling mass of emotions that we experience. And today's psalm is about anger, particularly anger at injustice in the world. What do we do with that anger? Apparently, we call for blood. We never exact blood, but we are commanded 
to call for it through psalms like this. Psalm 94 shows us three things. The problem of wickedness, the peril of faithlessness, and the promise of justice. Let's take a look. Verses 1 to 3. They open by giving, a, giving voice to the psalmist's anger. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve, O Lord. How long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? The psalmist cries out to God about the problem of wickedness in their community. The wicked are exalting. This is the Hebrew verb alatz which means to jump for joy, most likely in triumph. Who are these wicked people and what are they doing? Near the end of the psalm in verse 20, we learn that they are wicked rulers. These are eminent figures within Israel who are using their social power against the socially powerless to crush, afflict, kill, and murder. And they are doing so with glee. All the while saying in verse 7, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. And this makes the psalmist want to scream and to cry out to God for good reason. These wicked rulers are oppressing the widow and the fatherless, but the God of the Bible is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. Enough is enough, says the psalmist, because deep down he knows that God could take action by shining forth in vengeance. After all, this is the God who owns vengeance. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He is not indifferent. And when the piercing light of God's vengeance comes into contact with human wickedness, the result is perfect justice. And this is what the psalmist yearns to see. This anger at an injustice should be familiar to us as Christians. It should come upon us when we hear yet another report of police brutality, when the extrajudicial killings of men like George Floyd or Tony Timpa are caught on video and the indictments against their killers are overturned, or likely will be overturned. We should be angry that mass incarceration has become a basic mode of governance in our country and that coercion is the most significant way that so many black and Latino men encounter the American state. Anger should arise within us when we hear about the Chinese Communist Party's forced sterilization of Uyghur Muslims and other religious minorities, how these people are blindfolded and carted off to forced labor camps to make our face masks, clothing, and toys. We should be angry when abortion is promoted as a social good rather than recognized as a social tragedy snuffing out the life of millions of prenatal children made in the image of God. And if we see these things and we don't get angry, if we are not filled with a deep yearning to see God's perfect justice enacted in the world, there is something wrong with us. And this psalm gives us words for times like this. It is so easy to spend our days internally stewing over the presence of injustice in the world. Not only that, but our secular culture also conditions us to depend on fixes for injustice that leave God completely out of the question. But God has given us this psalm to protect us from stewing in anxiety and from pouring all our energy into scorched earth justice crusades 
that leave him out of the, the equation. We must daily place our anger in his hands before we do anything else. So the question is, do you pray like this? Back to the psalm. When we see just how deeply the claws of wickedness have dug themselves into the social fabric of our fallen world, we immediately face a strong danger. And the psalmist knows this. This is why he moves from the problem of wickedness to the peril of faithlessness. He's been speaking to God in these first few verses, but now he turns to speak to himself and others like him. Faced with rampant injustice, we are liable to trip and fall into faithlessness. And there are two ways that this peril could manifest itself. We find the first in verses 8 through 11. Faithlessness looks like agreeing with the wicked. They've got it right. The Lord does not see and the Lord does not perceive. A dear friend of mine grew up in an abusive home with a parent who identified as a Christian, but who proved by their actions that they were nothing of the sort. This parent had no consciousness of God's red-hot vengeance against the wickedness of abuse and acted as if God could not see and could not hear. When I learned the extent of the abuse and the horrors my friend went through, I was, I was tempted to believe the same thing. Thinking that God cannot see and cannot hear emboldens the abuser, but it is enough to drive the person who sees such abuse to utter despair. And this is the psalmist's temptation. So he chooses to talk back to his heart and the hearts of those like him in verses 8 through 11. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. The psalmist is correcting himself. The Lord God who shaped and formed the irreducible complexity of eyes and ears, sees into the corridors of power and hears the cry of the oppressed. The wicked person's thoughts and plans are weighed in the balance by the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and he deems them but a breath. This is the Hebrew word hevel, so familiar from Ecclesiastes. Their thoughts are but vanity like the mere puff of a child's breath against the consuming fire that is God. This psalm helps us pray ourselves out of a faithlessness that is tempted to agree with the wicked that God does not see. God sees, God hears, and he hates wickedness with a perfect hatred of which none of us are remotely capable. Verses 12 through 15 show us a second way we can trip into faithlessness in the face of injustice. Faithlessness looks like rejecting God's teaching. The psalmist speaks to himself in these verses to combat this temptation. So before we hear how he does this, let's dig a bit deeper into how this temptation presents itself. When we see rampant injustice in the world, we are in danger of coming to believe that God's word is an inadequate guide to reality. We stop our ears to his voice or we simply neglect it. 
we move out into the world guided by our own ideas and principles or the ideas and principles of someone whose counsel sounds more powerful and effective than God's. If you want to read an interesting book about how we do this, pick up Strange Rites, R-I-T-E-S, New Religions for a Godless World by Tara Isabella Burton. Very fascinating and convicting book. We do not know how the psalmist might have been tempted to reject God's teaching in his own time and place. Burton's book will tell you how we do it. And one of the most compelling ways we are tempted to reject God's teaching in our time, especially when it comes to injustice, is by looking at the world primarily or solely through the lens of identity politics. Identity politics is an approach to human interaction based on group identity. The fundamental reality of our lives as human beings, it says, is our group identification along the lines of race, gender, sexual orientation, etc. In identity politics, we look at groups and we slap a label on them as either fundamentally positive or fundamentally negative. And this attitude is prevalent across the political spectrum. The labels just get distributed in different ways. Consider the issue of race. On the far reaches of the right, you have a white nationalist like Richard Spencer, organizer of that infamous Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville back in 2017. And for Spencer, there is something fundamentally negative about all non-white groups. And on the far reaches of the left, you have a critical social justice scholar like Robin D'Angelo, best-selling author of White Fragility, who sees something fundamentally negative about all white people. For Richard Spencer, there is no such thing as a positive black identity, a positive Jewish identity, or just fill in the blank with anything that isn't white and European. For Robin DiAngelo, and I quote, a positive white identity is an impossible goal. White identity is inherently racist, unquote. And that word inherently is key. For all their differences, Spencer and D'Angelo are the same in their insistence that there is something inherent in us as members of white or non-white groups that determines our righteousness or unrighteousness. Our fundamental identity is as members of groups defined by skin who inherit collective histories and pathologies that make us who we are. And once you're equipped with this lens for viewing the world, the fundamental dynamic of life becomes a power struggle between these groups. That's why we speak of identity politics. Meaning in life is found via consciousness raising and collective action on behalf of the group you label as positive and pure. This lens of identity can be a useful tool to help us see where real injustices have been done in the past and how those injustices bleed into the present moment but it often functions like a giant club used to beat down a group labeled as inherently negative. And this feels powerful and effective when we look out on an unjust world. If you just fix that negative group, you will fix the problem, we think. But using this as our primary lens amounts to a rejection of God's teaching. In identity politics, human difference is fundamental. In the beginning, there was a whole panoply of groups that have little, if anything, in common. But scripture teaches us that all of humanity shares a fundamental unity as creatures made in the image of God. 
This image-bearing status unites us, but we are also united as fallen creatures who are all indiscriminately warped by the deceitfulness of sin. Identity politics resists this claim, insisting that some identity groups really are more warped and broken than others. The dividing line between good and evil is laid down between groups rather than down the middle of every human heart, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said. And this makes redemption human and political because redemption is just a new power arrangement legislated through the efforts of one human group against another. When faced with the injustice of the world around us, viewing the world primarily or solely through a lens like this is tempting. But it is a rejection of God's teaching about our creation, our fall, and our redemption in favor of something that seems more powerful and more effective. And our psalmist knows this temptation in his own time and place. And so he speaks again to his wayward heart in verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. It's easy to think of that word discipline in terms of punishment. Like Tommy refused to clean up his toys, so he gets disciplined and can't go to the birthday party anymore. But the next line shows us that the notion goes much deeper. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. This discipline is less punishment than training. By his word, the Lord disciplines us. He trains us to live as if he exists and as, and as if what he says is true. Living as if God does not exist can lead to deep restlessness. Faced with the problem of wickedness, we either fritter away in anxiety or we expend every ounce of our energy trying to rid the world of evil, or at least posting about it on social media. But verse 13 tells us that the Lord wants to give us rest from days of trouble by teaching us two things in particular. First, a pit is being dug for the wicked. When we think God is silent, he's actually prepping for judgment day. Rest in this. The wicked are running around as if God does not see their actions or hear their threats, but God has set a date for their disappearance into a bottomless pit with no hope of clawing their way out. When injustice seems to reign, we rest in knowing that no tyrant will get away with anything. This is God's prerogative, and he will accomplish it. We can also rest knowing that God will not abandon his people, verses 14 and 15. And it's worth asking, who are these righteous and upright people that verse 15 talks about? In identity politics, everybody slaps the label righteous on their preferred group. That's not enough. The word righteous can also sound to us a bit like perfect, and that can't be right either. The Bible has a different answer. 
In both the Old Testament and the New, the righteous are those who have embraced from their hearts the grace of God and have been given a righteous status as a gift. The righteous aren't one identity group. They come from every tribe, tongue, and nation. None of the righteous are perfect, but all have been humbled by grace. And here is where the psalm starts to cut deep. Imagine for a moment that God put you in charge of Judgment Day. The world is going to be judged by your moral judgments, your vision of what is good and right. These standards have been collected not from what you say you believe or post on social media, but from a transcript of your innermost thoughts, all the standards that you have set up for other people and by which you pass judgment over them about everything from parenting to piety. And there's a catch. You must be judged too. You must be declared innocent or condemned as guilty by your own moral judgments. Who of us would pass a test like that? And how much more would each of us fail on a day of judgment where the standard is set by the God of vengeance himself in all of his radiant beauty and majesty? Left to ourselves, there is no hope. And with a psalm like this, we are actually calling for the God of vengeance to rise up against us. Unless we have embraced Jesus from our hearts, he who is the grace of God. God will bring perfect judgment on a day that only he knows. But when God incarnate stepped onto the stage of history some 2,000 years ago, he came not to bring judgment, but to bear it. As Jesus hung upon the cross, the only truly righteous person who ever lived went down into the pit that is being dug for the wicked. And for a few hours, the final judgment was pulled out of the future and brought into the present. Jesus bore in his body the wickedness of all who turned to him for rescue and took them down into that pit so that he could bring us out again in his resurrection, counted righteous in him. Jesus died on the cross in our place, taking the punishment our sins deserve so that someday he can return to earth to end evil without destroying us as Tim Keller likes to put it. When you embrace Jesus from your heart, you become his heritage, verse 14. We, the church, are his people, declared righteous not because we are better than anyone else, but because of our union with him. And Jesus will not abandon his people he will return and bring with him a perfection of justice that our sinful hearts can scarcely imagine and carry his people with him beyond that great and terrible day. So, the psalmist has talked himself out of the peril of faithlessness and has come out emboldened. He closes the psalm in verses 16 to 23 by drilling down all he has said into the center of his heart with two questions and two answers about the promise of justice. Question one, who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? This is courtroom language. 
In a world that is ripping itself apart at the seams, who will stand up in defense of what is just, right, and true? Answer, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, when the peril of faithlessness nearly consumed me, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. It is a consolation that the arrival of perfect justice is one day closer with every passing day. Question two, can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. This is a rhetorical question. And the answer is a fulsome no. In a time when so much power is abused, and when moneyed interests bend the ear of the powerful to perpetuate further injustice in the world, and where none of us, no matter our group, are immune to the allure of such power. What a consolation this is. Our God is incapable of allying himself with injustice. And he is the one in whom we rest. But the Lord has become my stronghold, and my God, the rock of my refuge, he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. When the final chapter of history arrives, Jesus will crush his enemies with his nail-scarred feet and wipe away his people's tears with his nail-scarred hands. Cry out to him in your anger. Entrust the pains of the world to his perfect judgment. Thank him for his grace poured out on the undeserving at the cost of his own life and prepare to follow him into eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of vengeance, the God of perfect justice. And we thank you that Jesus has stood in our place to purify us from all unrighteousness by his sacrifice. We pray that we would come to you in our anger, that we would cry out to you for the just judgment that you will bring, and that we would be at peace in a world that is so crazy. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.